from Shrek. Yeah. Let me just see that. Yeah, I think that this is actually a Happy Meal toy. It's, uh... Yeah. I... It's weird when you find these obscure, like, toys from, like, that. And this isn't even a toy that you'd buy. This is like a Happy Meal toy. I wonder at. if they had toys for the Rocketeer. Oh, I'm sure they did. You know, they had uh, trading cards. Oh, yeah, you gave me yeah, I gave you a few of those, and they were... Uh, they were Speed Racer toys at McDonald's. For the movie? Yeah. Wow. It was just, you know, cars, which was probably the best thing you could have gotten. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, anyway, Every... what... uh, I'm sorry. Uh... Well, looking away just in them, everyone. I'm Jack. And I'm Andrew, and we're here to talk about all the McDonald's giveaways relevant <laughs> to movies. That would actually be quite a... Well, we'd have to get Macatania on that. You know, I bet they're going to do another My Little Pony thing. Like, every once in a while, they have My Little Pony figures in McDonald's. Well, sure, they're they're probably easy as hell to make. But the thing is, the funny thing is, what? they look better than a lot of the My Little Pony merchandise out there. Uh, how, how so? It's like, back before My Little Pony was good, and, pe- and, well, men, yeah. and men liked it, there were... <laughs> There had always been My Little Pony toys. Well, yeah. So they made them look a certain way. Like they have got chubby cheeks and these sort of cherubic faces and giant eyes. And for a long time, even when My Little Pony came out and like the the art style was totally different, they looked, the toys looked the same. Well, yeah. Well, that was, a lot of them were like totally like interchangeable. Yeah. But uh, they've gotten better as things have gone on since fi- since fans have demanded some better stuff. But for a yeah. long time, the McDonald's toys looked much better than the toys you actually went to a toy store and bought. Huh. They actually looked like the characters in 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 the cartoon rather than the little play sets. Hmm. Now it's been some time. They've done better stuff, and now it's like well, you can find some very high quality. Well, I think, uh, collectibles out there. Well, I think the the original idea was that they were kind of like the pony equivalent of Barbies. I mean, that was kind of my impression as a, as well, a kid. Well, my, my Little Pony rises out of that whole 80s deregulation of cartoons and advertising. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it, it's birthed, the, the cartoon is birthed to sell toys. Yeah. Just like Transformers was and G.I. Joe and... Yeah, you know, at least G.I. Joe had been a toy beforehand, but, you know, they yeah. kind of just made it its own thing. But anyway, we're not here to talk about My Old Pony, at least. We're here to talk about G.I. Joe, which has how many films? Three films? (laughs) Actually, yeah. Well, you count. I guess there's an animated movie somewhere, right? I don't know. I don't know. Well, we're we're here to talk about (laughs) a lot of different things. We haven't been here. We haven't been back in a little while. And since we last uh, did a full episode, there has been a major event that happened uh ken burns came back with a 10 part mega event which i almost uh you know it's, it's weird when you have like these certain craters like uh, david lynch comes back with twin peaks um does like an 18 part you know symphony of lynch 
it's full metal lynch jacket that you put on there if you watch that Twin Peaks Return. <laughs> that's, Someday, that's what we're re, that's what we're gonna brand Twin Peaks the new Twin Peaks series full metal lynch. Sure, I, I, if you watched it, you you would probably agree with that. Um, and, this but, is my rifle. This is my gun. I'm talking backwards, and it's all for fun. Mm, that's a little much sense, but it would be more like <laughs> this is the water and this is the well. This is for fighting, and this is for hell. No, uh, for those of you who've seen Twin Peaks, which one of us, about. which one of us did the better rhyme? Comment on the Wages of Cinema.edu <laughs> backslash Wages of Lynch. Now I'm going to have to make an edu website. Damn it, Andrew. Um, no, Ken Burns uh, put out a ten-part documentary along with uh, his co-director Lynn Novick, all about the Vietnam War. Yeah, this oh is his longest documentary since uh, the war, which was about World War Two. Was the was the war also in ten parts? Yes. Really? I, I thought it was shorter. I, I I'm actually kind of assuming because every time I try to watch the war, I stop in the middle. And, I haven't watched that I, one yet. And I don't watch much further. Well, I heard that that one. It's a pretty long documentary, though, just like you'd expect a documentary about World War Two to be. Yeah. Uh, but then Ken Burns goes right around, makes some smaller documentaries, then makes the Vietnam War, which is long, just as long, if not longer. It seems like it's as long as the Civil War, and uh, of course, now, the Civil War, I'm sure, is nine parts. Then in that case, then the Vietnam War beats it. But again, we're, we're, we're getting off track here. I mean, um, actually, it's funny you bring up the war, because I was listening to a, an interview with Ken Burns, and he said that he, he he decided on doing a documentary about this 10 years ago. Like, this has been in the works a long time. Like, because he finished doing the war, and around the time he was finishing up, he turned to his part, he turned to his collaborator and said, you know, we got to do Vietnam now, right? Hmm. And she was like, Really? He's like, yeah. And he was going like, to do one about Korea, but he forgot about it. <laughs> what, do people, is that, do people forget about the Korean War? Korean War's nickname is the Forgotten War. Mm. This yeah. explanation has been brought to you by the Wages of Cinema. Uh, but, uh, well, maybe someday somebody will do uh, a, a Korean War documentary. No, they won't. <laughs> the, the vietnam war oh my god it reminds me so much about why i love ken burns this might be as i as this went on this might be that my favorite thing i've seen from ken burns it's pretty damn intense i loved it so much because it like i, I it's it's a it's it's in a way it has a little bit of the scope of civil war but it's different just in the sense of how the materials that you have available to you, obviously, like, because when he made the Civil War, obviously everybody by that point was dead, so, <laughs> at least as far as he knew, unless if there was, like... Yes, by uh, that point, everybody who was relevant was dead. Yeah, so uh, he couldn't, so it was more of, like, a bio, like a real biography type thing, where you have experts, you have historians, you have people reading letters, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's Here, what the Civil War is. What makes Ken Burns' style like? It, it's it's like all the hallmarks and stereotypes of a Ken Burns film. It, it, celebrities reading voiceovers as historical figures and then saying their name after the quote. It, what, Footage of just photographs and and landscapes, things like that. But but Vietnam War is different because you know he had access to. As much as he wanted from everywhere, like you know, he had 
access to old film reels. He had access to footage that probably has never been seen from both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah, There are a lot of North Vietnamese films in this. A lot of, yeah, North Vietnamese footage. War footage. Yeah, war footage and uh, shot very rough, but it, you know, looks fine for the sake of this. He He also has a lot of audio recordings from all of our presidents that were involved with Vietnam and it's uh, that I, I love that kind of shit man I love hearing Nixon tapes can't get enough Nixon can't get enough Lyndon Johnson either got a big Nixon fan here <laughs> oh you know I'm a Nixon fan yep. <laughs> but uh, I must have this is the kind of thing that I think about is like man this must have been a nightmare to get all of his sources together because well yeah again 10 the, years and and he you know not only does ken burns the further forward in time he goes the more he has access to so not only does he have witnesses to the actual events and not only does he have film footage of things going on yeah. but now he also has television television yeah so many news reports so many interviews uh so many uh so many eyewitness accounts I, and that's part of what makes Vietnam so significant. It was the first televised war. Yes, exactly. It was the first time also that people were seeing uh, people in combat on TV, people that were right there in the thick of it. It wasn't the type of thing where you could sort of mythologize it the way that World War Two was, or, or even in, in a sense the Civil War was. Yeah. You know, it was there in front of your face, and when that happens, it creates a different uh, perception for for reality for people who aren't there. And it's this this whole this whole thing, the, this is just a master's class in storytelling to me. Yeah. In in the sense that he has so much that he's working with, and it could be very easy to get bogged down in details or get or possibly go into things that aren't interesting, but. The way that he's able to navigate from, you know, focusing on the Vietnam soldiers and their story, uh, you know, on the American side, and then folk, and then going back into the U.S. domestically about what the presidents were doing and the, you know, behind closed doors and politically. Then you have the anti-war protesters and the families uh, of all these soldiers. Then you have the Vietnamese yeah. on both, and you have North and South. People who are interviewed there, like this is, uh, you know, you have he, the access that he got to some of these Vietnam veterans on the Vietnamese side is incredible. Yeah, it's it's something that we haven't seen a lot of, but I don't. Yeah, I can't think of too much. Uh, but if you but if you were to put it out by itself, like oh, here's a movie that's a documentary about Vietnam veterans who were North Vietnam were North Vietnamese. People probably wouldn't be too interested in that. I mean, there might be I, it, it's, some. It's great. But it's, it's not great as a as a thing. It's like this is a great historical source. Yes, you should appreciate well, that. It... But then you mix it in with all this other stuff, and it becomes much more yeah. cohesive, and mm-hmm. it becomes much more relevant. Well, well, it's the kind of difference between uh, you know when Oliver Stone, you know, he made Platoon, which became it's still I think his biggest hit. And then, uh, you know, he had like a trilogy of Vietnam movies. I talked about this back when we did our Oliver Stone podcast. You know, he had Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July. And then he did the one that nobody talks about, Heaven and Earth, which was his movie about a Vietnamese woman who uh, went through a lot of horrible things during the war. 
And, you know, and that kind of proves what you were just saying, that, you know, you, there, there weren't as many people who wanted to go see that story, even though you had Tom Lee Jones in that. Yeah. But this shows that if you combine it all, again, and it's similar to, I'm sure that, you know, in the Civil War, Ken Burns did a similar thing where he went between the North and the South and the politics and all that. Yeah. But having it, Vietnam, his, this is more of an oral history, if you could say. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, well, it's sort of. It's a it's a pretty good blend of all sorts of histories. I, no, I wouldn't say that. It's it's Ken Burns is going through the events of uh, of Vietnam and to illustrate those events, he talks, he shows his video footage, he shows his he he plays his audio recordings and then he lets people tell it to us in their own words. Yeah. And, and that's just using visuals and narrative to reinforce you use someone else's personal narrative to reinforce the overarching and exactly it's not like he's it's not like he's suddenly creating like a new documentary form i'm not trying to say that ken burns is not is not particularly revolutionary no 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 he's not he's the kind of guy who i think i counted at least two or three times he, if there was like a particularly patriotic or American moment, he brings out the do 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 do. This is very. This very. That's something that 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 track. He's like he's addicted to that. Doesn't that pop up in the Civil War too? It's like I think it's. It's like a running theme. There's like a really low key piano version of Battle Hymn of the Republic. Yeah, that's been in his documentary since the Civil War. Yeah, it's almost every time like, it comes up, you're like, "Yep, that's it." That's that's, kind of, that, that's like when you have like John Williams, like you suddenly hear like a cue from something, and you're like, "Ah, oh, okay." Yeah. But it's like Ken Burns <coughs> is so distinct that he's so easy to parody. It's yeah, no, easy, no, exactly. It's easy to make fun of Ken Burns because I, it's like, <laughs> and people and people have done a great job doing it. I even recently, like on the Late Show with Stephen Colbert, okay. he did a thing where it's like Trump's Vietnam War. Sure. And he just took like every cue from Ken Burns and just did Donald, a Donald Trump version of it. But yeah, did that, actually just on that track before we go back to it for a second, I was just reminded of um, you never watch. Did you ever watch the Critic, the cartoon no. from the nineties? There was like a really quick little Ken Burns parody where it was about electric football in American history. <laughs> it's like you have like. The shot of electric like football, and then the guy, then they cut to a guy's like, if you ask me, electric football is a metaphor for America. Always shaking, always weaving, <laughs> never know where it's going. <laughs> hey, wait a minute. The, the America's nothing like that. It's just a stupid game that doesn't even work. Get that camera off me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So there's nothing particularly revolutionary about Ken but Burns. He's but he's great every, at it. He, yeah. He does he, he, one trick and he does it so well he's per- that you're riveted to the screen for two hours. Well, that's why I think that this might be my favorite thing. It feels like a lot of what he's been working up to for a lot of his career is right in this documentary. Like, he, he's honed it to the point where, you know, when he wants you to get emotional about something, he can do it. Oh, yeah. Oh God! There are some moments here where it's just uh, like heartbreaking, mm. over and over again. You know, because you know he has these guys who, you know, he has some of these Vietnam vets who are, you know, probably have gone on to lead pretty, 
you know, they've tried to lead pretty regular they've lives. They've put together lives for themselves. But now they're back here, and as they revisit things, like, the, you know, you, know, you have that one guy, um, Hal, I'm forgetting his name, but he was the uh, the POW. Yeah. And when he's recounting... Basically, basically living the story that Werner Herzog told in, Re- in Rescue Dawn. But only worse, because yeah. at least there, Dieter Dengler kind of got out after not... He kind of escaped. Yeah. This guy... You know, he describes like, you know, you can almost, and you can almost picture it. Like he tells the story about how they were so hungry and desperate. They, the, the, they the, killed com- the warden's cat. Yeah. They killed the tried cat to, and tried to hide it. And, and then when, and then when the soldiers caught them, they had to like bury the cat. And one of them was beaten so bad that he like died basically. And then they took the cat carcass and hung it around the, the guy's neck. Oh yeah. Yeah. Was, before he buried it. Yeah. But but then, yeah, later on, they, he, he tells his story about when he finally went home after, like, five years. Oh, oh And man. everyone's just, and it's like, you feel his joy, and you're, and, he, and he's talking about, like, being on the plane and all, like, the pre-stewardesses and everyone's being like, man, I'm so glad you're back. You and have that like, Coca-Cola and, he's and like, bubble gum. Listen, we got anything for you. What do you want? And he's like. I want a Coke and yeah. I want bubble Yeah, exactly. Gum. And, and you, you can't help it. But but also, what's also and they play amazing. Ray Charles's oh, America beautiful. the Beautiful. Yeah. And it should be cheesy, but it's not. It's no, just, it's you're perfect. In it. you're, it's, it's so perfect. But what's great, too, is that Ken Burns has a way of, of, of having those moments and then brilliantly undercutting them with more tragedy because he because this guy is telling the story uh, and he's recounting how he finally got off the plane and he is reunited with his family and you know how emotional that was and pierre coyote comes in in the narration says most pow marriages fall apart yes oh oh god and it's like we should we should come up with a name for that like like the uh, Peter Coyote letdown. Like <laughs> I was gonna say, the Ken Burns leg sweep. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of leg sweep in this uh, as well. Um, yeah. Also, obviously, uh, like one of the fascinating things that also was there. At the that's s- actually, that's actually something he did in the very first episode of the Civil War. How so? The first episode of the Civil War deals with the first few months of the war. And it ends with this very, um, this very poignant letter from a man who is about to go into battle in like the first big battle of the Civil War, Bull Run. And he writes this story about how he's ready to do his job, and how he mm-hmm. says to his wife, "Listen, if I don't come back, you're going to be fine, and our children are going to grow up to be great, and everything like that." And then, as soon as that letter s- finishes, um, the narrator comes in and it's like, this guy was killed in the battle. Of oh Run. yeah. Ken Burns leg sweep. It, it, it's <laughs> Stephen King sometimes does that in his books too. Like he'll have a chapter where he's describing a character and kind of drawing you in over and over. And then like at the very end, he'll be like, he never got outside ever again or something like that. Yeah. He never saw the light of it. And, uh, Oh God, some of the storytelling, when I talk about how brilliant it is, you know that you know that tragedy is coming, but you're still swept up in the story and almost forget that it's happening. Like, there's the whole story involving, um, oh god, I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, M- Mogi, M- Muggy is that his name? Uh, he's the he's the kid. He's the guy who, um, 
gets really hyped up as a young man to go fight in the war. And, uh, you know, and his family says, do you know what I'm talking about? And he wants to go over there. His family's like, no, 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 don't go. And then he, you know, his, his sister and his mother talk about how he didn't want to, you know, he, he was so desperate. He ran away from home and he wouldn't come back until they let him enlist. And they're like, okay, fine. Enlist, but please, please be careful. No, don't, don't, you know, try, try to be careful. And he goes and, you know, and he's fighting for a while and you know, in the back of your head, oh, this guy is going to die. The thing, <laughs> the thing that I think, but but you forget about it. I think what I think, in a way, I think what throws you off though is this idea that this is not fiction; it's real right. life. We know the conventions of fiction. Yeah, in a movie, we'd be like, "Okay, this man's dead." But <laughs> yeah. you, but you know, real life doesn't play by the same rules. So you're, and so Ken Burns is using that sort of motif of "I'm building up, building up, building up." We know there's a big letdown. But this is real life. It could turn out a different way. Mm-hmm. So you're. So I think it's. He kind of plays on your hope. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing is that I, like logically, I'm I'm kind of saying to myself, oh well, if he, you know, he should be. If he was alive, wouldn't he be interviewed by Ken Burns at that this too. point? That's and, a big clue. Yeah. Isn't it? But then like, and he's not. But yeah, I'm still brought into his story, and I'm wondering like. Okay, maybe did is something else going to happen to him? Like he could have he... died after the war between now and then in the filming. Maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah, exactly. Like because there are a lot of stories like that. He might have been one of those veterans who who fell into despair and took his own life. Yeah. Maybe. But but the, but yeah, but he but he brings you in. He you know it's such like a he knows how to reel in that humanity like so so thick like or that guy uh, or the other guy Musgrave in the Marines. Yeah. Who's all? Who, he's one of the standouts. You know, and the fact, like, and you know, he's such a standout in part just because, like, every time he's on camera, he looks, like, so haunted. You know what I'm talking about? And it it was something I, I kind of related to because, um, like, I had a, uh, I had a friend I went to, uh, I, I had in high school, mm-hmm. who, uh, after high school ended, he, uh, he enlisted in the army. You know, because this was, you know, right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So he immediately got sent over to Afghanistan. And I I didn't see or hear from him for, like, two years. And, like, he, he came back, like, only for a short time. Like, he was there for maybe, like, home for maybe, like, a week. And then he got... he I don't think he went back to Afghanistan after that. He might have gone to, to Germany or, or something like that. Okay. Don't be surprised. There are still American troops in Germany. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, um, uh, but he had like you know th- there was a you know there was a little time where we were hanging out and he everything you know we were talking things seemed okay, and then somehow the conversation turned to him being uh, over there and he talked about like some of his buddies and there was just suddenly this shift where his look turned into like a thousand mile stare right and it was so scary and it was like oh. I like I know like everything you went through just in like a moment now, mm-hmm. or what you might have gone through. I mean I don't know how much combat he saw, but it was whatever that com- wh- whatever you're thinking. I'm pr- it's probably not good. <laughs> no no no. Um, and it's you know it's it, it, it. Everybody will find something I think with this documentary as as Americans especially because we all know somebody who had some type of experience or something like that. Wow. I mean my my dad got out of it because he luckily was 
he he was of the age where he, he that was when they had the birthday draft, hmm. and so his birthday is in December. So he luckily didn't get picked. But my, my uncle was in Vietnam. Oh uh, yeah, he doesn't talk about he he's mentioned it once. Hmm. Uh, kind of when he was in a, a bit of a vulnerable situation, but. Uh, uh, that's, it's, again, it's, it's one of those things is like, does he not bring it up because he doesn't want to, or does he not bring it up because nobody asks him? Mm, that's a good, do you, well, do you think he, well, here, I mean, I don't know how well you know him, but do you think he would, uh, would you say to him, oh, you should check this out or would you not even broach the yeah, subject? Because he's a guy, he's a guy, um, he's kind of a weird guy. <laughs> But not like. Well, that's like Corey has an uncle who also was in Vietnam too, and she has some stories. I won't get into that. Not, but not like in that kind of way. Like this guy's crazy, but it's kind of like. Uh, it, anyway. Yeah. But it's this thing like. Uh, he he knows me. He knows I'm into history, and he, he's right. he's talked to me a little bit about it. So if I was to say to him, I watched uh, the Vietnam War by Ken Burns. I think it's a really good documentary. Then you know that would be a good way to just you know. To introduce that to him, you know, whether he wants to watch it or not, that's up to him. Yeah. Well, part of it too is that I mean, I I kind of was asking my mom and my dad like, oh, hey, are you going to watch Vietnam? And they they said they watched a little bit of it. Like, I guess it might also be different just because they lived through it. You yeah. know, that experience is, you know, there. Um, they, also another useful thing you talked about, like the first episode of the Civil War. Like, the first episode of that and the first episode of Vietnam are similar for me in that, you know, all the background is just so useful and interesting to me as a history, as, as someone's interested in that. Because I didn't know a lot of that a lot of that stuff about how Vietnam and France yeah. were so uh, up entangled for all those years and how little America paid attention to the lessons of that conflict. Yeah. You know... I- I'm a big fan of the documentary by Errol Morris, Morris The Fog of War. Which, yeah, which is a, which Robert a, which McNamara. A very intense examination of Robert McNamara and his, not not just his life, but his involvement in I Vietnam. thought about that watching this. And in a way, and Robert McNamara, I was in... Uh, was but, in college? <laughs> no, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought for okay. a second. But anyway, but, this but, movie. But that's one thing I knew... And in a way, Robert McNamara, he, he's been vilified for so long. Hmm. But in a way, he plays his own part because he's the man who commissions the report that eventually becomes known as the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, inadvertently. I mean, well, he commissions the paper that he puts together because he felt, feels so much guilt over all the bungled things that he wants That's... to try to examine everything that happened because he's somebody who... You know, what, what's interesting about him, you have people like Johnson or Kennedy or some of these other politicians or generals who come from a real political or military background. Robert McNamara, he was the president of the Ford Motor Company. He was like a, he had a mathematical mind. He wasn't somebody who was military thinking. He was about, let's see what the figures and cold hard facts are. Yeah, and Robert because McNamara of that, was a man who had made his living off of analyzing statistics and using them to create uh, a, to, to run things better so he approached vietnam at least later on in a way of let's learn from our mistakes and we can pass this knowledge on and the passing on never happened but then the papers that were supposed to help people understand what had happened fell into the hands of daniel ellsberg 
and got released by the New York Times and really and showed people that I think we're I think we're becoming a history podcast right now. <laughs> uh, I, I can't help it though, but it's it's I mean that is what uh, I mean a lot of what this 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 thing deals with. Yeah. And it's fascinating, especially when you trace then how again. But it also goes back to storytelling. That's what's fast. That's what's great about history is that it involves stories and how, and also how the people who have that history choose to tell it. I mean, that's why on the one hand you can have speaking of Vietnam and movies. On the one hand, you can have the Green Berets. Yes. <laughs> or you know the most jing- one of the most jingoistic pieces of garbage ever on the other hand you can have apocalypse now which takes a very different look at vietnam and uh you know underneath a lot of the psychedelic imagery is you know very uh much about how if you completely go into that heart of darkness it's gonna engulf you yeah um uh Sorry, there's a really great moment that I, that I'm lo- looking forward to revisiting. Where, where yeah, because I'm definitely going to revisit and, this, and where Ken Burns uh, talks, uh, where the film talks about the Tet Offensive. Oh it's a, man, it's a heart pounding moment of suspense. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because well, there, there's so many great little details in it too. Like, man. When they're, they're, they're the the battle in the streets are happening, and they just they've mentioned the detail about the radio station yeah. and how they were playing nothing but uh, v- Viennese waltzes and the Beatles, yeah. and the Beatles song they choose is "Tomorrow Never Knows." Yeah. So obviously, he puts in "Tomorrow Never Knows" as you see all of this rough sixteen millimeter footage of. Of uh, of street fights like with you know between the uh, the Viet Cong and uh, the South Vietnamese, oh it's great. Yeah, it's it, it again heart pounding. That kind of juxtaposition, yeah, heart pounding. Because it's weird because I, I I actually didn't know I knew that the Tet Offensive was one of the major moments in the war, but I didn't know exactly how it panned out as far as who came out on top like i uh, watching it you did not have spoilers from reading your history books <laughs> well, well no but that's that's the, that's the useful thing about this this series too is that um like when when i was in school they taught us some things about vietnam but i feel like i didn't pick up as much as i should have mm. do you know what i mean like yeah. i picked up that you know about the gulf of tonkin i picked up uh a couple of little facts, but I never really learned about how, uh, you know, how, how forceful the Viet Cong was yeah. and how they were able to, you know, they, they lost millions of lives, yeah, millions. And they somehow stayed strong enough to, you know, once the Americans left, take over the country. And then there are these sort of cringing moments where you see American soldiers like, not doing anything terrible, but being really kind of aimless in that country. Where they're just smoking weed yeah. <laughs> like out, out of their rifles. But not just that. It's like, what's his name? Uh, Tim O'Brien. Yeah. Who wrote The Things They Carry. Right. Like, talking about just being in this one province. And it's like, we go from village to village and just shake them down for some Yeah, reason. yeah, yeah. And, and it's or, like... Or the, or the, or the one... Or the, 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 the black school teacher. Or, who, or there might have been somebody else who said, like... We were just torching these, you know, houses and huts, and it's like, what are we doing here? Yeah, 
<laughs> it's exactly that. It's like, why why did we shake down these villages? Well, I don't know. <laughs> and it's like, but again, and you get the sense of like, it feels like apocalypse now where you're just like, what are we doing here? What are we trying to accomplish? How does this help us accomplish anything? Yeah. And, uh, and, and you understand it's because most of the people in the army had been drafted. They didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. There were no, there were none of those professionals and volunteers who had been there in the early stages of the war. And it's it, and it feels like everything is kind of slow is kind of decaying. Yeah, and at the same time, it's also I'm, I'm reminded of that line uh, from. Uh, from Martin Sheen uh, in Apocalypse Now, where he mentions, like, when he talks about, like, the soldiers sort of mention, like, how they, in, in Ken Burns' movie, they're like, yeah, I would go off to Australia for Japan for a week for R&R, and I'd be like, why am I going back? And that Martin Sheen had that line where he's like, Charlie didn't get much R&R. He was either dug in too deep or moving too fast. His idea of that was cold rice and a little rat meat. <laughs> and he had two ways home, death or victory. <laughs> And, but that's that 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 Never sums get up out of the boat. Absolutely, <laughs> goddamn right. Yeah. Um, the what the thing that really sticks out to me is okay. the last episode. Oh yeah, where they talk about the final final fall of Saigon. I'm wondering if and you're going to talk about the same guy I am. I'm not particularly interested in one person. Okay. I'm interested in how Ken Burns draws out. Oh no 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 that the that, event. that is great too and <laughs> because it's, we, it feels that's one of the most intense parts of the whole thing. Yeah, because we know this is the end. Yeah. But Ken Burns is determined to show the death throes of South Vietnam and the last agonizing moments as people try to leave, including the last load of Marines who are stuck in the embassy. Yeah, it's like, you and, could, I almost could picture, like, where, I almost want to now just see the movie about the last ten Marines that are on that rooftop who aren't getting any radio connection, and... The last thinking, ten American Marines in Vietnam. I want to see, like, that Dunkirk movie. <laughs> <laughs> But it's awful because there are so many people who are still left in the country, Vietnamese supporters of of the South Vietnamese regime Mm -hmm. and people who would work for the CIA and uh, all those people. And they're stuck there because the U.S. can't bring them out. But still there are these 10 Marines there who are like, we're getting out too, right? (laughs) And they hold that note of suspense for a pretty long time. Yeah, and and it... uh... We can it, talk about this for a long time no, because no, no. it's a ten-part documentary well, well, series. Well, no, 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 it's no. Okay. But but what what you're saying though is important because if you talk about like what themes are being wrestled with and how it connects back in real life, but also in the story itself, I mean a lot. You know, Vietnam can be summed up in one word: failure. It's a you know failure of imagination, the failure of the human spirit, failure of strategy, and that whole drawn-out sequence is just kind of showing how. It's just failure after failure happening. Like mm. the ambassador, yeah, who is just like almost an imp- epitomizes 
everything that was wrong with the American mindset from the beginning, that this whole thing of, we are going to beat communism. We are going to beat it down. We're not going to give up. We're going to stay here. And he's saying this in at, at times when he's in the pneumonia-crazed mania. And you also have to consider that <laughs> that ambassador's son had died in Vietnam. That too. And that so too. you understand... He, but he also he also stands for this very sympathetic notion of Vietnam is why did I send my son to Vietnam to die? Yeah, for him it's that so this country will live. I am not giving up on this. He, he's the bitter. Even he's when, the bitter final American who is at the bar saying, "No, we're not going to give up. God damn it, we're going to stay in there." So yeah, you kind of want to kick him, but you also understand where he's coming it, it, from. It's it's like if you had it's it's like if you had a, a scene The Empire Strikes Back where uh, the rebels have to get out of the Hoth base and you have like the one guy who's like, damn it, we're going to stay here and defend this ice planet. (laughs) (laughs) There are Vietnam parallels in Star Wars trilogy, you know that. Well, I I try not to get too depressed. No. Uh, But uh, no, no, again, just in terms of sheer storytelling, if if you want to see something that will fully engross you and you know these 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 aren't short episodes. Like some of these last two hours a piece. Yeah. Like all together, this has got to run over fifteen hours or so, or maybe longer. Oh no, way longer than that. Yeah, I, you th- I don't know if it's twenty hours, but it ha- it's somewhere between fifteen and twenty. Okay. Because I don't think every episode is two hours long, but some of them are. You know what I didn't expect to see in this documentary? What? The opening credits of Barbarella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For a second when that happened, I was like, wait, did somebody change the channel on me? <laughs> um, but, you know, you got to fit Jane Fonda in there somewhere. Well, of course. I mean, that, that you, you got to. Uh, well, I love those how John Musgrave comments on it. And he's yeah. like, that was a little creepy. He's like, you got to remember, Jane Fonda was our fantasy. And I mean, our really our fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We get it. Put your hand down. <laughs> All right, I'm, but you I'm know, sorry. you understand. <coughs> What's interesting too is that you... and that was that was a very human story. <laughs> no, it was. Uh, so I couldn't I couldn't help but be, but be kind of charmed by that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, um, as a man, as a man. <laughs> yeah, <fun>. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, it's just every single moment of storytelling here and the way that he finds just the right moment to stop one part and then flow into another one and he'll cut from like people talk like the 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 absolute chaos of of uh of some of these protests uh riots and demonstrations and uh oh that's another thing i wanted to mention um when you talk about how the, the the whole ted offensive was really intense for you the entire segment about Kent State. Hmm. Oh, that really got to me. Yeah, that, was... that, that really shook me up. Watch, like watching that, and like I knew a little more about that whole uh, story before going into this. But the way that Kemmerns really gets into the detail of that, and uh, and just every moment of how this so easily could have been avoided, how it was just. And yet, how the Americans sided with the Marines. Not the Marines, the National Guard. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Oh, man. That was a bummer. And then, of course, how'd you like the music? 
It was pretty awesome. What? Or uh, was it a little obvious here and there? Well, I think a lot of it was very apt. Some of it was so, uh, you know, it really tickled me because just I, I you, love this period of music. You could tell when Trent Reznor was really making his presence known on the soundtrack. Oh, I heard a track from the social network. and uh, <laughs> But it really helps to illustrate that sort of disorienting feeling that Vietnam really causes when you when you dive into it. Yeah, but it's uh, industrial. And I think one of the best moments is at the end of episode 9, which is like the second to last thing, where U.S. withdraws uh, from Vietnam and they start playing Whiter Shade of Pale over the credits. Oh, that really stuck with me, yeah. Yeah. Whiter Shade of Pale. I like there's this one episode that, like, at the beginning where the one soldier says, there is something that we just, we, there, that somebody said in Vietnam, this is what we do. This is what we know. This is like it was some line like yeah. that. This is what we do. And then you hear uh, Jimi Hendrix's "Are You Experienced?" like the opening licks of that, and then that comes in. And I'm like, ooh, yeah. Oh, that gives me the chills. They, do they even used "Gimme Shelter" in a way that was not, you know, I, I you, we might be a little sick of that song after it's been in like a hundred Scorsese movies. And, and in a bunch of video game trailers. Oh, yeah. I did see that in the video game trailer. Yeah. Yeah, that was a little, I didn't need to see that song there. But here it worked because it wasn't in combat. It was in a scene with the, uh, the, the, the veterans against the war. Hmm. In that whole sequence with, with John Kerry and, and all that. John Kerry, a man whose face has not changed. <laughs> yeah, there are no like wrinkles or anything. His face is exactly the same. It's just a little grayer. I think I think his chin just distracts everybody. He's like <laughs> he he has like it's kind of like if Jay Leno's face was skinnier. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, That's pretty good. <laughs> um, I don't know what else to say about this. Again, I don't want to talk about every great moment in Vietnam because I'm just going to watch it again. And I'm it. going to. So uh, this is going to be like for me what the Civil War is for you. Like I, I could see myself revisiting this like every year. Now so. is the greatest time of all to revisit Ken Burns' Civil War. Is because, that that's more relevant than ever? You think? Yeah, you and I should watch the Civil War together. Hmm. Now, I don't think... Uh, you, you still have a VCR, right? I have it on Netflix if you want to watch it that way. No, we have to watch it on VHS. <laughs> Why? Because that's how I've done it for the last 500 years. <laughs> oh, you're really that old. I didn't know your beard was all, all like that. <laughs> anyway. But yeah, no. no well, it, oh, that reminds me too. The little moment that uh, one of the black soldiers, just one last little thing, he mentions how like, there are these white guys who had the Confederate flag on their yeah. in their camp. It's like, man, what am I doing fighting over here? You have the Confederate flag here. What the? F <laughs> that that felt pretty relevant to me. Watching that again. Oh, oh boy. 2017, the year where but the Civil War me, is more relevant than but trust ever. Trust me, this isn't depressing. The Civil the, the Vietnam War. Maybe? This documentary is not depressing. I found it well. I think it, it, it may. I'm not going to say depressing is the word, but it it does it does bring to mind how in a, in a number of ways the U.S. hasn't moved on from it. It's it's thought provoking. Oh, thought and provoking. It's going to cause a lot of serious thoughts, but it's not going to be like everything's terrible. It's going to be. I understand now. What, or I understand a little better, 
what this is all about. Yeah. And now I understand why things aren't always great. But and uh, and that understanding brings a measure of peace. The U.S. went through a real, you know, it was a an extremely difficult period of history, um, where there were a lot of mistakes that were done on, you know, without that need didn't need to happen necessarily at all. Well, you can just watch the documentary and just see but, what Ken Burns says. But yeah, you could see what Ken Burns and Lynn Novak said. Um, that uh and if also you know you know nothing you know you can also get some great pure coyote narration sure he has like i haven't seen him in a movie in a while but he he's just because he also didn't he narrate uh prohibition he narrated uh um, the dust the roosevelt's okay yeah that's what i thought uh did he do prohibition i think so and I th- i'm pretty sure he did the national parks series i was my brother was telling me about the national parks that that's actually uh, really fascinating, and you wouldn't think it would be. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it makes you want to go to a national park. Well, unlike the Vietnam War, which, which doesn't, doesn't make... want to make, make you want to go to Vietnam. <laughs> well, in that sense, Ken Burns did a great job. So anyway, well, I do hear that Vietnam is actually a very lovely country now. I, I have heard that too. Yes, um, I mean, I mean, it's a country like any other, but you know. People go there. It's nice. It's not as, uh, like, you don't go there. I mean, the one downside, I think, uh, and I'll end with this, though, is that they he meant, they mentioned it in passing that even today there are still landmines there. There, there are still unexploded ordnance. Yeah. That, that's the one downside. You just got to be careful about the, other, the, the ordinances that are never going to be unearthed there. Huh. Anyway, um... Yeah, that's Vietnam War, guys. You, you should all check it out. Take uh, take some time out of uh, two weeks of your life and <laughs> dig into, you know, one of our the craziest chapters of history. Um, so, anyways, what other things you've been watching lately? I watched the Testament of Doctor Mabuza. Oh, great! I, I love that movie. Yeah, Fritz Lang uh, does a great job. I don't think though that film film pacing film between this film and now film pacing has undergone a great deal of evolution oh sure uh testament of dr mabusa is is paced like a novel a little bit even though it's a movie yeah uh and you know that's nobody's fault it's just you know you, you can't blame fritz lang for being ahead of the times on this count in other ways with sound with uh with his uh with his shots and everything you know it's fantastic do you see the influence of on this of on batman and on some like uh comic books well they they share a similar sort of they share a similar sort of pulpy uh well, narrative well especially with like the mabuse character Right, I mean, he, he's we would recognize him as a forerunner of of the modern supervillain, but that's yeah. but I don't think that's something unique to Doctor Mabusa. That has some is something that's mm. been existed in literature long before superheroes right. existed. Well, I mean, we're talking like the like Sax Romer oh, and the sure. Fu Manchu novels and Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And the reason why I bring that, it up there's is, a long uh, there's a sorry. long history of that in literature. Before it even gets to comics. Oh, oh, sure, sure. But it's... you know, if if you want an example of that in film, then yeah, Doctor Mabusa is is a perfect example. Right, and I um yeah, it's just it 
the craft of it is really impressive and the kind of twists and turns it takes are really special. Um, yeah. I mean, there is one twist that kind of got spoiled for me because of uh, Pervert's Guide to Cinema. But I, I know what you're talking about. But uh, you still got wrapped up. In it's it not. Anyway. It's not a. It's it's not a major plot revelation. Yeah. Uh, I I was wondering too <laughs> if maybe fine. the movie had been spoiled because I knew exactly what scene you were talking about. Yeah. But it's not like oh this was the thing all along. No, but uh, no, no, no. It wasn't exactly that. I mean, I, I Zizek was using that as an example of something else like it wasn't about the story it was more about the power of the voice yeah which I, which is really fascinating really, how I, it worked how when you see it in full in the in the testament of dr marbus in the full film how that really does play out in an interesting yeah. way and i agree with zizek voice is, is terrifying because you know me and my and my weird uh and uh, my weird uh what do you call it the uh my weird aversion to seeing voice actors in person <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I'll talk about it some other time. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, no, no. I'm glad you watched that, and I would also recommend at some point. I don't know when you'd have the time for it, but technically, that like he it's actually a, it's, it's, a, it's a, well, it's a trilogy. Like he made him a boost trilogy. The first part is like a f- almost it's almost like three and a half to four hours long, so it takes some patience. But the original Doctor Mabuse the Gambler. That, to me, when I talk about, like, comic books or pulpy stuff, the Dr. Mabuse the Gambler silent film, that feels like, unintentionally, the birth of comic book storytelling. Hmm. Like, as far as, like, the way that Dr. Mabuse in that story, he's much different than he is in the in, in the 32 film. Uh, in that, he is a real, he's a character that is much more there in the world he's much more diabolical and you have the police force which again when i talk about batman or something i'm talking almost more about the way that like the gotham police force is its own entity and the way that the storytelling lays out originally i think dr mabuse uh, the, the silent film might have been presented or the intention might have been more like less vampires if I'm not pronouncing that right, where it was almost more serialized. Hmm. Uh, and But I would recommend that highly as well. That is just full of rich, pulpy uh, filmmaking and uh, you know great silent acting. I actually started to watch that. Oh, okay. But I kind of ran out of time and I had to move, move up to um, Testament to kind of get my, my schedule straight. That's cool. But, you know, I'll get it back to it. Yeah. It was promising. Yeah. Um, so since we last talked, I saw the movie. Uh, this is a movie I'd seen before, um, but they were doing, I think uh, AMC Theaters and Fathom Events are doing a, uh, a series of Miyazaki movies on the big screen. And so uh, I saw Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Mm. Uh, again, and this has been the first I, I, I saw it years ago. This is a, an early Studio Ghibli film. Yeah, um, might be almost considered maybe the first official one. I, maybe it was done right before Studio Ghibli was officially formed. Uh, it was Miyazaki's second film, and it feels like this is the one where he really became Miyazaki because mm. um, he actually did a graphic novel of this too, or he did a manga of this story. Had you have you seen it? No. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's an interesting film because it it deals with certain issues that Miyazaki would re- return to again. Like you could almost say Princess Mononoke is almost like him doing a 
I'm not going to say like a remake, but it's him kind of taking some of the ideas from Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind, and reshaping them into another story. Well, we've talked about Princess Mononoke. We did. You can you and all of you you so, can go back and listen to our list episode about that. But um, you'll also hear a lot of interesting things about the <laughs> Five Thousand Fingers of Doctor T. Oh yeah, that was our <laughs> final episode of the list. Um, that's what we finished off with. Um, well, I, I, the first time I saw Nausicaa, I don't know if I understood all the, everything in the story. This time though, I had none of that issue. Like I thought it was almost one of his most straightforward adventure slash eco warning films. You're a lot smarter now. <laughs> I think I am. I'm Good. patting myself on the, on the back of that. Um, no, it's, it's a movie that, uh, Nausicaa is, uh, she's a princess who is trying to help her village, uh, because there are these uh, giant, like, I don't know what kind of creatures you would call them. Like, they're, in the movie, they're called Ohm, like O-H-M. They're like gigantic, like, dung beetles or something that, um, and they, you know, and, and, and people, and a lot of the people around her look at them like, oh, we gotta kill them, we gotta kill them right away. And she's like, no, no, you don't kill living things. You well, know, and you that's... do, but, but, but pace yourself. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And watching it this time, this character Nausicaa is like I think one of like the great heroines in movies, like not just animated, like not that focus too narrow. Like it's almost like no one. Ma- what's great is that no one really makes a thing about her being a woman in the story. It's just I can do a lot. I can do these very heroic, badass things, and you're not judging me. Like you know, sometimes in a movie you might go. Oh, you're a woman doing this and Wonder Woman. Well, look, I liked Wonder Woman more than you. I you will liked admit, it way more than I did. I liked Woman Wonder Woman quite a bit. I saw that movie twice. Um, Jeez, but I, I will admit that that movie does do that uh, a few times. Nausicaa doesn't do that. But this is just where, okay, well, she's a woman. She can do this, and you know, she doesn't ever you know, get gussied up or anything like that. At the same time, though, Miyazaki allows her to have to be a full emotional life. Yeah, well, she, you know, if she gets upset about something, she does. And you really, your break, heart breaks for her because of how, you know, her femininity isn't defined by any type of culture. It's just, if you're a woman and you can do this, then you can do it. Um, and she's right. a lot stronger than a lot of the women, the, the men in the story. Oh, also the music is mind blowing. Like eighty five percent of the score almost sounds like it could have been found in an Italian horror movie or a thriller. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't think that there's Not, any difference. The, if... This the screening of Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wing will be scored by Goblin. Yes. No. I, or Tangerine <laughs> Dream. <laughs> yeah. It's like imagine the score for Sorcerer over your uh, or or um or one of those movies over like your favorite anime. Like imagine if Goblin scored like Attack on Titan or something. Hmm. Would that be kind of interesting? I don't know. Attack on Titan. Okay. I mean, I I I will say that. Yeah, I mean, now I would say that like Mononoke might be more technically incredible but for 1984 also the animation in this is just so gorgeous like there's a lot of great design it's a lot of great sense of movement no one can ever say that there's a studio ghibli film that looks bad no 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 even the ones that i don't think are great still are beautiful like there might be a couple 
later ones, like, I don't know, like, From Up on Poppy Hill, or uh, When Marnie Was There, like, like some of those that are a little bit more based in reality, they're still gorgeous. It's mm. just the stories don't compel me as much as some of the other ones. Uh, I'd also recommend checking it out in Japanese. Um, I don't know, maybe I should... Which, uh, what, what, what do they do for the screening? Oh, the screening was well, weird. Uh, well, well, there were different... Ti- well, the thing was, they had different times. Like, I could have... I, I guess I was busy the day before. They had it, the English dub version playing the day before, but I just couldn't get to that. Okay. And then they had the, uh, the the Japanese version playing the night I was able to go. So that's why I checked it out. I probably wouldn't have been discerning in this case. I would have checked out either one. It just happened that this worked out the way it did. What was weird was that before the movie started, they played a cartoon, which I didn't I didn't catch all of it because I was like a couple minutes late to the movie, uh, and that was really strange. I don't remember exactly what happens with that, except that it's like you're seeing lots of dreamlike imagery, and then it ends with everybody asleep in a classroom. And then there was like a short fake documentary segment like that was all about i don't know how to describe it it was like about like a guy who i don't remember the name of this now oh i'm blanking on it there was like but this is before nausicaa started like they had a short documentary but it wasn't i don't think it was real about this guy who runs an amusement park who uh like it's like the history of this guy in his amusement park where he created all these rides where everything is just completely insane. Like the are like you have, sometimes you go on an amusement park ride and it has like arms that might stretch out, you know, and people can go like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. In this, it's almost like you had the arms, like an octopus that would like go like, row, row, row. and, <laughs> And, like, you see it in live action. Like, I guess it's done with CGI, but it was, like, what? What's going on? Yeah. I was so weirded out by that at this screening. I I don't remember the name of it, uh, but, yeah. (laughs) That was what happened before I saw this screening of Nausicaa. If anybody knows the name of this short that I'm talking about, please send your emails to wageofcinema at gmail.com and give me exclamation points so that you... Help solve the mystery. <coughs> Prove Jack to be a hallucinating dotard. Hey, you use that word. I'm not that old. Anyway. Uh, so anyway. Um, you're older than I am, so that makes you the oldest person in this podcast. Yeah. I love that that word is now in use just beca- because of who our president is. <laughs> To be to be honest, it's all up. It's all thanks to Kim uh, Kim Jong Un. Although I heard that his translation might have not been entirely correct, like he might have really said something else. But whoever, it sounds like something a North Korean speech would have. Yeah, it does. Oh, before we uh, change segments, also really briefly, I watched. Uh, um, right now, we're in a little bit of like a Steve Kingessence, or am Steve I... King, Stephen King. Oh, Steve King. No, no, not, not, not to be confused with the congressman. I thought he was like your best friend or something. Uh, hey, Stevie. Well, I, hey, well, Steve. Well, he's nicknamed Uncle Stevie now because he's gotten to that no, point. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. 
I can pull up proof and show you. Oh, after. hey, it's Uncle Stevie. I, yeah. I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> hey, like, he, what, did, did you spend the weekend at his, like, book mansion? No, no. I'm not going to call Stephen King Uncle Stevie. I'm not saying I do. I'm saying that some people use that nickname. Those people are pretentious. <laughs> I find it kind of endearing. It's like they like you're like your crazy old uncle that hangs out in Maine and writes these stories. And no, all right. <laughs> all right. Maybe to maybe to people who like really love Stephen King books, <laughs> you might be like, "Oh, you're going to get the new uh, Uncle Stevie book this weekend?" <laughs> no, but you don't refer to it like that. Like it's more like. Well, then when do you use it? Oh no, it's like he said. Hey, did you see that uh, Uncle Stevie tweet the other day? Or. How is that any? How is that any better than what I just said? I don't know. All right, I'm getting off track here. Stephen King. Stephen King. Uh, we might call it the uh, the Reckon King. We could, but we. Uh, all right, all right. Because right now, Dark Tower came out this summer. It didn't sucked. Do, it didn't do. Yeah, it wasn't very good. It didn't do too well. It came out, and by it I mean it. The movie. Yes. We, let's not get into an Adam Cassell bit. What movie? It. The name of the movie. It. The movie on the screen. It. That's what I... Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we're doing closer to a slappy squirrel That's... thing. Anyway, <laughs> but, it, but it was quite... was very good. And uh, he's had other things with TV. He has a new book out. But on Netflix, some of you might not know, there's another movie that premiered this past Friday... An adaptation of a book he wrote called Gerald's Game. Have you heard of this? It sounds like a title I've heard. Here, here's the premise. Uh, Gerald Ford goes crazy. <laughs> and that's all I got. Or what is it really? <laughs> he falls down and gets into uh, what? He falls down a rabbit hole. <laughs> all right. Um, no. Um, anyway. Uh. So in this story, you have this uh, like couple, like this married couple in their forties, and they go off to uh, their like they have they have one of those like nice houses oh, on wait, a lake this in the is middle one, of nowhere the one with the handcuffs in the bed. Yeah, I was getting to that. You, you've talked about this a little bit on another podcast. Did I? Okay, yeah. Well, but it anyway, came this out. Is, yeah, this is the story of Gerald's yeah. game came out. Yes, Gerald's game came out. The story of a girl, a woman who gets handcuffed to a bed. Her husband dies of a heart attack. She's left there by herself. Which so, I think it was, is a fantastic idea for a movie. Yeah, I mean, and in the book... I, it's already a good book, so... Well, well in the book, she's, uh, like, she's really vulnerable, too, because... Because she's naked. Well, ha almost completely naked. She has her underwear on. The movie changes that, which, at first, I thought it'd be... I, I think I, we had a discussion about this very subject. We did. I'm not going to go back to that. I want to talk about why I thought the movie. Okay. The movie's very good. The movie is actually quite good. Um, the director faithfully adapted the book, which means that the ending still is not strong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, I know that's the cliche with Stephen King. He doesn't really know how to make that landing. Uh, you know, he has like these wild and amazing stories and, and all these memorable people characters. people complain about The Shining, the movie. Oh, oh, because of the hedge maze and all that. Yeah, or the the, the the giant hedge animals. Um, no, in this case, it, it, the ending of Gerald's game is I, I I don't like it for other reasons. Like it's just they introduce one el they not introduce but they 
he tries to wrap up certain elements with one thing that just, I don't know, it, it didn't work for me. But the, what's great is the presentation and how everything unfolds. Again, you, you, you're stuck with this one character in this room. And it, in a sense, it's a little bit like Misery meets 127 Hours. Right. You know, you have a character who's kind of going crazy, who's stuck in a bed. Uh, in, a, in a sense, it's similar to 127 Hours, where your mind is kind of just jumping to these different points. And uh, also, you know, obviously the survival aspect of, you know, what am I going to do when I, I, can't, I can't get any water in me? Uh, I'm gonna, this, there's also a dog who somehow wanders into the house and, uh, starts snacking on the, uh, the corpse, uh, and Carl Gugino is the, uh, the woman who, uh, you might remember from, uh, such films as Sin City and Watchmen, and, uh, in, in, in Sin City, oddly enough, she's the one woman who gets naked. Okay. In case you need a reference point. You dirty men out there. Um, also, Bruce Greenwood. Here's here's a couple of interesting casting things in the movie. Bruce Greenwood as uh, her husband is really great. He was in the movie more than I expected uh, because again he's the husband who dies of a heart attack, but he comes back a lot in the story as you know the, the he's not really there but he's there. Right. And then again, if you've read the book, you know what this means. But uh, Henry Thomas plays uh, her character's father in flashbacks. And Henry Thomas, for those of you who don't, who might not remember, uh, played Elliot in E.T. Cool. So that really weirded me out, remembering that and associating that. Again, <laughs> if you've read the book, you'll know what I mean. When you watch the movie, you'll also see. But uh, I, I quite enjoyed it. It's really intense. It's horrific in ways that are not, like, in It, you could say, like, a criticism against it is that there are a few jump scares. There are no jump scares in Gerald's game. It's just about mounting pressure and psychological torment and, again, more so about the terror of being in a completely vulnerable and, you know, paralyzing situation. Like, the drama of Gerald's game is, like, oh, my God, I'm getting a leg cramp. But that's... <laughs> really intense yeah. like anytime you've had like a leg cramp in bed imagine that but then imagine you're handcuffed to a bed yeah <laughs> um pretty much imagine any situation that's super inconvenient but then imagine you're handcuffed to a bed yeah and it it's all... like oh i can't find money from my toll and i'm handcuffed to a bed yeah and it also and it in in the, the part of it too that it, it kind of springs from a very awkward uh sexual situation and then it just completely goes off the rails. Oh, I'm out of condoms, and I'm handcuffed to a bed. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Um, but yeah, if you have Netflix, I, I recommend Gerald's Game. Uh, again, I don't, I don't think it's getting that much attention like compared to uh, other things that are on Netflix. It's by a director I've, I've talked about before, Mike Flanagan, who did the movie Oculus and uh, Absentia. And he's also the movie Hush, which is also on Netflix. And you all, if you like horror movies, you have to watch that. I'm not saying you should choose to. No, you have to watch Hush. Uh, it's that damn good. And Gerald's Game is another good notch in his belt. He's not, you know, one of, I don't think he's like one of the all-time greats or anything. But he's a solid genre director. And we need people like that 
at a time when a lot of horror is just the same old jump scare garbage. Hmm. So. Oh, there are a lot of jump scares in this movie. And I'm handcuffed to a bed. <laughs> See? It works. Okay. Alright, we'll stop there. Uh, if you have any thoughts about uh, the things that we've talked about, um, you can email us at wagesofcinema at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at the Wages of Cinema Podcast. You could subscribe to us on iTunes and SoundCloud and Stitcher. Also, uh, we're on the Google Music Player app, uh, if you have that on your phone, under podcasts. Uh, and write us a review on iTunes. It helps us with our uh, visibility and our presence on there. Um, and so do it. Just type, get your hands on that keyboard that you're at and type in Wages of Cinema Podcast and do the doobly-doo. Um, when we come back, uh, we have our What the Devil movie of the month. And... Uh, There'll probably be a bit of growling, and I'm not talking about the bear. See ya! Yep, see ya. Feeling kind of seasick